Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Last week we kind of filled in the, the big picture, like gave an outline of what it is that Paul's trying to do in chapters 1 and 2. Essentially, he's telling us we're all sinners. He starts by talking about the sins of the Gentile world, the sins of the world out there. And once uh, his Jewish readers are cheering at his description of how depraved those people are, he switches his attention and says, let me also tell you how depraved you are as well. That we're all sinners together. So he will denounce human unrighteousness, but then he'll turn and, and attack denounce human righteousness as well. But he's actually doing more than that. He's not just writing these words to convince us all that we're all sinners, that none of us should look down our noses at anyone else, that we're all in this together. That's part of it, but there's more that's happening. He's not just stating the fact of sin. He's also explaining what that means. Like, what has sin done to the world? What are the effects of sin on us? What are the things that we cannot do as a result of our sin? And what are the things we cannot help but do as a result of our sin? These are the kinds of things that he's getting into. So he's giving us a kind of theology of sinfulness, which is depressing to read, but also necessary. If we're going to understand the glory of the grace that the gospel proclaims, we need an understanding of the sin and the bondage that that grace has rescued us from. So Paul is giving us what you might think of as a a sort of um, like a, a theological history of sin, but it's not really a history in the sense it's not focused on events. So Paul's not going to go to his Gentile audience and say, let me tell you this story about Adam and Eve. Let me tell you the story about when they ate the forbidden fruit, and that's called the fall, and and that sort of thing. He's going to tell the story of sin, but he's going to tell it differently than that. Not focused on historical events, but focused on uh, the flow of ideas, in a sense. There's a genre of prose called history of ideas. If you're interested in philosophy or you're interested in kind of social movements, maybe you're familiar with this, where an author We'll talk about history, but mainly as a means to an end to talk about the way ideas developed over time and what the consequences of those ideas were. Paul's doing something like that, only he's not talking about an idea. He's talking about the, the, the reign of sin and what the consequences are that flow from that. So over the next few weeks, what we're going to be doing is working through this theology of sin little by little, the framework is there in our minds, and now we're just going to go through section by section and try to understand better what it is that Paul is saying. So this morning, we're just going to look at two verses, 19 and 20. If you remember in verse 18, Paul begins by talking about the wrath of God. He writes these words, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power 
and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In a nutshell, what Paul is saying is that God not only created the world, but that in that creation, God reveals the truth about himself, the truth that is being suppressed. And this revelation of God in creation isn't obscure. It isn't hidden away. It's out in the open. It's something, he says, that is plain to them. It is something that has been clearly perceived ever since the beginning. So he's not saying God somehow has has subtly given hints in all creation. And if we're smart enough, we could look at those things and find them. He's using language that suggests that what God has revealed in creation is obvious. It's there. It's easily perceived. That means that everybody knows. That means that we are without excuse. God's wrath is revealed, and no one has an excuse to stand behind, to hide behind, for rejecting the truth that is revealed. We're all responsible for our ungodliness and for our unrighteousness. In a nutshell, that's what Paul is saying here. And when he says it, I can't help but think of Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens is my favorite atheist. Uh, which may seem like a funny thing to say, but of all the new atheists, all of the guys kind of in that that recent outcrop that uh, Richard Dawkins is the most famous of, the one who I respected the most because he was by far the, the best thinker and writer was Christopher Hitchens. Uh, he and I shared a, uh, an appreciation for George Orwell, and so I was powerless against liking him, even though we were uh, opposed to one another in our, our thoughts, certainly, about God. And Christopher Hitchens did an interview with someone on on cable news once where he'd just written a book about atheism and the host brought up Pascal's wager. If you're familiar with Blaise Pascal, you know that in his writings he, he popularized this idea and I'm going to really dumb it down. Pascal was a genius me, not so much. But basically, it's that thing you've heard of where, where someone says, hey, maybe there's a God, maybe there's not a God, but if you believe in God, if you bet on the fact that there's a God and it turns out you're wrong, then nothing happens. You die, and that's all there is, and there's no judgment to answer. But what if you bet that there isn't a God and you turn out to be wrong and you find yourself standing before God? What are you going to say then? Wouldn't it be better to just bet on there being a God, and then if there's not, no harm done. That, that's the idea. And so the host poses this question to Hitchens as if, you know, maybe he'll feel that, oh, that's a great argument, and, and I have nothing to say against it, but that's not how it goes. Hitchens actually says something interesting. He says, okay, let's hypothetically pretend that, that I find myself in this situation where I have denied that there is a God, and that I die, and it turns out there is a God, and I'm standing at the pearly gates. I have a feeling that when I stand before God, St. Peter, the throne of judgment, it would be better for me, rather than saying, hey, it turns out I bet that there was a God, and there is, so I win. Maybe God would respect it more if I said, you know what? I didn't believe in you, honestly, because you just didn't give me enough information. I would have if you'd made it clearer. But when I looked at the evidence rationally, When I considered rationally the evidence, I just could not make that leap 
And he said, if there is a God, I think he would respect that position more, the honesty of it more, than this silly idea of betting one way or the other based on probability in order simply to avoid judgment. Of course, he wasn't conceding that that he might stand before God and have to answer these questions. He actually likened uh, the idea of a God who wants to be perpetually worshipped, that that eternal church service that we often think of heaven as being. He said, it makes God sound a little bit like the North Korean dictator. And is that the kind of God that you really want to serve, who needs that constant praise over and over again? And that's a funny thing, and one of the reasons maybe why he's my favorite atheist, or was my favorite atheist, um, is that... uh, as a kid, I felt that way, too. Like, when people told me heaven was going to be like a church service that never ended, I'm like, are you sure that's heaven? Because it sounds like the other one. But uh, hmm. I'm happy to say that by God's grace, I came to an appreciation of worship that, that makes the prospect of being able to be in the presence of God for eternity and to glorify him and all that we, we think and say and do seem very different to me than it once did. But I understand. At a certain point as a kid, I, I got that objection, and I understand the point that he's making as well. He's saying, I'm just being honest. If, if God had come out from behind the curtain, if he had revealed himself, clearly, if he'd made it obvious, so that it didn't require this leap of faith, then of course I would have believed, but God didn't do enough, and so he can't expect me to do the rest of the work for him. Basically, the argument. This is important. I think many people... Christians included, think of unbelief as simply a rational default in the absence of compelling evidence. In order to believe, you have to take a leap of faith, right? You need some extra thing. If you didn't have that, if you were just making judgments based on the evidence of of your eyes, of course you wouldn't believe. Why would you? The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. Go stand outside and listen for it and see if you can hear that. Like, no, I can't. It's just nature. Why would I believe? Maybe if if God opened the clouds and came down and said, it's me, I'm here, then I would believe. But, But in the absence of that, skepticism just seems like a reasonable position. A couple of thoughts, though. First, I think the reason why so many of us, uh, Christians included, object to the gospel when it insists on the spiritual priority of the Holy Spirit in salvation. It says there is no salvation apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and the sovereignty of God. The reason that emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation irritates so many of us is that we have conceded that unbelief is primarily an intellectual, not a spiritual problem. That the reason people reject God is they just don't have enough evidence. They're just being reasonable. And if that's the nature of the problem, lack of evidence, just trying to be reasonable, it doesn't need a bigger solution than that. If unbelief is a problem of evidence, a problem of reason, a problem of will, just making the right choices, then we don't need a solution that runs deeper than reason and will. Secondly, though, because I am a longtime fan of Christopher Hitchens. I not only have heard this interview of his and read a lot of his books, but I also heard a talk that he gave at a book festival talking about how he had come to his atheism, how it was that he had come to be so convinced that God wasn't real. Interestingly, like a lot of 
devout atheists, he had grown up in church. And he remembered a moment in school. He went to some sort of a religious school. He remembered going out into like a nature walk with his teacher. And the teacher was pointing out all of these things that were examples of God's handiwork in in creation. Look at all the wonderful things God had made. He was a young boy, um, nine or ten years old. And uh, as the teacher was talking, he described it this way. It suddenly dawned on me that she was wrong. She kept saying, look at all the beautiful things God had made, but God hadn't made those because there is no God, and it just occurred to him. He was kind of proud that it had so early. Like, it hadn't taken him long to figure out it was all a sham and that all the adults were lying to him about this stuff. He was pretty smart and congratulated himself on getting it so early. But the funny thing about that was, when I heard the story, it sounded differently to me than than maybe it did in his ears because I had grown up in church hearing exactly that kind of story. They just ended differently. They just ended differently. It would be the other way around, or people suddenly realized, it just came to me, oh, it's because of God. It's because God loves me. These realizations, these kind of conversion experiences, where we look back on and we see that, that it wasn't just about the evidence. It wasn't about doing your due diligence and weighing your options. There was something more going on, something subjective, yes, but, but something spiritual as well. It's easy for us, maybe, in the church to acknowledge, to some extent, a spiritual component in salvation. It's harder to acknowledge a spiritual component in unbelief. But the argument, the excuse that Hitchens makes, I just didn't have enough evidence, that's exactly the argument that Paul is punching a hole in here. He says God reveals himself in creation, and and he reveals himself actively. When we see that God reveals himself, don't think of this passively. The point that Paul is making is essentially the creator reveals himself in his work, and that's a commonplace idea, right? We know a lot of creators through their work. If you think about your favorite writers, artists, musicians, you know them through their work. You've never met them, usually, You don't know necessarily much about their lives, but it seems as if you know them through their work. If you had a a Picasso painting and you were wondering, like, like who had painted this work, you could dust it for fingerprints. And if you found Picasso's fingerprints on it, you could say it was revealed that he had made this. There in the paint, in the little smudge of paint, we saw a, a little whirl, a loop, And it matches Picasso's fingerprint. He revealed himself in the work of his hands. But that would be passive. Just by virtue of making it, it reflects who made it. Paul's saying something more than that. God hasn't just left his fingerprints on things. He's signed them. More than that, the work, the nature of the work, declares his identity. Picasso would be a good example If you have a Picasso, you don't usually wonder. It's a distinctive kind of work. It's like having, you know, something like that you treasure and say it's beautiful because someone tells you it's a Picasso. If you didn't know, you'd say, ah, but because it's a Picasso, we know. His work is so distinctive, it kind of identifies who did it. God reveals himself in that way, plainly, clearly perceivable. That's the kind of revelation that Paul is talking about. And what's being revealed is kind of inconceivable. His invisible attributes. 
Paul is saying something paradoxical, that the invisible God has shown himself and been clearly seen, and yet is invisible. These invisible attributes raise an interesting point. You know, clearly as a human being, there's a sense in which you cannot know God. None of us know God exhaustively. None of us comprehend him. None of us are, are, are seeing eye to eye with him. Sometimes you'll hear people say things like, we want to think God's thoughts after him, which is a great sentiment, but literally not possible to do. Right? God is just beyond that. In that sense, we cannot know him in the sense of full, exhaustive knowledge. But God has made himself known to some extent in creation. That knowledge is accommodated to our ability to know, but he is revealing himself. He does not want us to be ignorant that he is there. And the things that Paul points out when he lists these invisible attributes, specifically he talks about eternal power and divine nature. And the word that he uses there that's translated divine nature, this is the only instance in the New Testament where that precise word is used. Because what Paul is doing here is something similar to what he does at Mars Hill. He's writing to the Romans. As he's speaking to the Greeks there, he's writing to a Hellenistic culture, and he's using ideas that are not foreign to them. Ideas that would have been familiar to them from their own religion, in particular from their philosophy, their Stoicism. Already, these were people who culturally believed that it was possible to perceive the absolute. It was possible to perceive these divine characteristics in creation. It was possible for a philosopher like Socrates to intuit that there was a holiness higher than the holiness of the gods. Because when he looked at the Greek gods, they didn't seem that holy. But somehow he knew from nature there must be something better than this. There must be a higher standard than this. So he's speaking to them in a language that they can understand. Paul is trying to say that everything we need to be known Everything that we need to know about God has been revealed. He's not saying everything, everything we need to know about God can be derived by reason from nature alone. That's not the point that he's making. What he's saying is something more like this. Even without scripture, it is possible to know enough about God from creation, from nature, in order to be without excuse in order to intuit these realities. So God is revealed in all of creation. This passage is the classic text that theologians look at for something called general revelation. And you may be familiar with the distinction between general revelation and special revelation. Again, just dumbing it down. General revelation is this idea that God has revealed himself in all creation, generally. This is a a revelation accessible, in theory at least, to us all. But that there's another kind of revelation, which we call special revelation, and that's the revelation that we find revealed in Scripture. But sometimes people will will make a distinction and say, you know, what we find in Scripture, that's, that's revealed religion. And it's possible to have another kind of non-revealed religion from from nature. But the reality is both are revealed. That God is revealing himself in the works of creation. All of knowledge 
is in that sense based on revelation, something God has shown. It's just a question of where it has been shown. And of course, the the highest example, the full culmination of that special revelation of God is Christ himself, the person of Christ, God in the flesh, is the revelation that, that beats all revelation, that all other revelation points to. Now, if you think about it, the idea that God has revealed himself in all creation should give us a very positive and robust attitude towards knowledge in general. It hasn't always been true of Christians that we've been pro-knowledge. Sometimes the church has earned its reputation for anti-intellectualism, for wanting to, to only expose ourselves to thoughts that agree with us, to want to live in a kind of echo chamber, right? No, not expose ourselves to all of these dangerous influences. Right? Don't tell me about this stuff. I don't, uh, I don't want to think about things like that. And we tell ourselves maybe the path of safety is to only listen to what the Christian experts tell us. Right? Just, just cloister ourselves. Don't listen to anyone who's not a Christian about anything that they say, whatever it's about. The problem with that, of course, is primarily theological. The Bible doesn't teach that all Christians are made in the image of God. The Bible teaches that all human beings are made in the image of God. The Bible doesn't teach that God has revealed the truth only in Scripture. The Bible teaches, Scripture teaches, that God has revealed this truth in all that he has made, which leads to this, this uh, what can be challenging but really shouldn't be realization that, that we have good things to learn from unbelievers, that people who reject God have good things to teach us about the world that God made. And we've got to accept that. In fact, to go further, Calvin actually says that if we reject truth because it's come to us through these channels, it's like rejecting a gift of the Holy Spirit. God working through sources we don't approve of or accept or trust, but all truth is God's truth. Everybody who knows anything that's true knows God's truth. There aren't any neutral facts out there. All of the facts belong to God. So we don't, as Christians, have a monopoly on knowledge. All human beings are made in the image of God. All human beings have something to teach us. It also matters what we do with what we've been entrusted. It matters how we treat these truths. When we twist them, when we distort the truth of God in creation, suppress it, when we lie, we're doing injustice to the facts that God has created. So it's important for us to be good stewards, not just good stewards of the physical creation, but good stewards of all creation. Good stewards, not just of the things, but also of the ideas as well. We're called to have a positive view of the truth. And yet, there is a limit to this. You do have to acknowledge a limit. It would be possible to put too much weight on this fact of general revelation. If we tried to go it alone, if we said all that we need to know is revealed to us in creation, we would be missing the point that Paul is making. There's a kind of theology that's based on general revelation. You might have heard the term natural theology. That's the, the field that attempts to use reason to determine certain theological truths apart from special revelation. Um, complicated subject. I could not do justice to it. But, but just to kind of sum it up, think of it this way. You've heard of the logical proofs for the existence of God, 
the ontological argument, cosmological argument, teleological argument, things like that. So you're familiar that there were these monks back in the olden days, and when they weren't arguing over how many angels could dance on the, on the head of a pen, they were talking about how they could logically prove the existence of God. They don't even need the Bible. It's a caricature. It's a misperception of what they were trying to do. But what they were trying to do was, was create compelling arguments based on human reason, based on the evidence of creation, to point to this very thing that Paul is illustrating. And in doing that, they show the value of general revelation and also the limits of it. So when you think about those logical proofs, you see the value and the limits. The value is that all of those attempts do help us understand the coherence of the Christian faith. That, that given the premises in Revelation, these arguments, these logical arguments, can help us see how the pieces fit together. That faith isn't, by its very nature, irrational. That you don't have to sort of turn your back on reason in order to embrace Jesus. That's made clear by those efforts. But you also see the limits in the sense that, well, learn these arguments and then try to use them. Find your own Christopher Hitchens and say to him, well, you clearly have never heard the ontological argument, and once you have, you will bow down and worship. It probably won't work, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Because as convincing as these arguments are, if you're already there, they're easily brushed aside if you're not. Easily brushed aside if you don't already want to be convinced. This is pointing to something that, that Martin Luther picks out in his lectures on Romans. When he talks about this idea of general revelation, he says the problem is, yeah, it's true that, that creation informs us that there is a God. It's true that when we look within ourselves, we find within ourselves what you might think of as worshipful inclinations. You know, as Paul will explain later on in this chapter, as human beings, we're all worshipers. But Luther says the problem is we all subordinate that impulse to self-interest. So yeah, you do clearly perceive certain things in creation if you're a, a Hellenistic thinker. You see something about this divine power, this transcendent something, and then you invent Zeus and attribute all those attributes to him. And Zeus turns out to be a god made in your image who just happens to have attributed to him some of these natural theology characteristics. So what turns out or, or starts off as a good impulse is refracted into something bad, into something worse than bad, something idolatrous. Paul's not saying, in other words, we can reason our way to God. What he's saying is something more like we ought to be able to reason our way to God, and the fact that we can't is pointing to something. The fact that we can't do it, despite the clear revelation of God in creation, suggests there's a problem. And the problem isn't just lack of evidence. The problem isn't ignorance. The problem is blindness. In writing about the insufficiency of general revelation revelation of God and creation, Calvin makes these observations. He says, the manifestation of God by which he makes his glory known in his creation is with regard to the light itself sufficiently clear. In other words, the problem isn't that God hasn't shown enough. The light shines and it is sufficiently clear. In that sense, that revelation is sufficient. But he adds, 
On account of our blindness, it is not found to be sufficient. There's enough light, in other words, there's not enough vision. The light exists. God has revealed himself, but we do not have eyes to see it. We cannot see what's there. And he adds these words, We are not, however, so blind that we can plead ignorance as an excuse for our perverseness. There's a blindness, there is an obstacle, but it's a certain kind of obstacle. It's a willful obstacle. It's a blindness imposed on us by ourselves. Or to put it another way, it's a blindness that comes as a consequence of sin. As I said, Paul's point here is not just to convince you we're all sinners. He also wants to talk about what that means, like what the effect of being a sinner is. Like what, what are the problems you now have to take into account and compensate for? A theme that emerges in, in all of Paul's writing, but especially here, is this idea that the divinely ordered punishment for sin is to be handed over to the power of that sin, to be left to its consequences. So when Adam and Eve sin, or when you sin, that, that act, that transgression, that's not the end of the story. There's a consequence to it. You're pulled deeper into it drawn more fully into it. It becomes more encompassing. That sin begins to exert a power over us, and ultimately we may be left to it. That sin may be allowed to have its way with us. That's a consequence of sin. The idea of the wrath of God being revealed, one of those those ways it's revealed is through the consequences of sin, through the bad things we see in our actions, in our will, in our, our thought. Once we fell into sin, in other words, the grip of evil tightened upon us. And part of the punishment is the way that that grip pulls us down deeper. The way that it pulls us farther away from the good, making the good harder and harder to perceive. So that ultimately what is evil looks good to us and vice versa. What this means is as sinners, none of us are neutral reasoners. None of us are standing outside of the drama of sin and salvation, capable of making objective judgments. All of us are trapped inside this story. All of us look at the revelation of God through the lens of our own sin. And that means that none of us can trust what comes naturally. Oftentimes, we tell ourselves that whatever comes naturally must be good, because nature equals good. Paul is saying, no, as a result of sin, not only do we not perceive nature rightly or or what nature reveals, but also what seems to come to us naturally is not, in fact, coming from our nature, but coming from our sin, coming from our captivity, our bondage. I'll date myself here, but when I was a kid, there was a love song where the lady sings, how can it be wrong if it feels so right? It can't be wrong if it feels so right. The song was called You Light Up My Life. It was terrible. But, um, but that sentiment is one that's it's hard to escape. That, that if, if, it, if it feels right, if it seems right, if it seems natural, if it comes naturally, then, then, then it must be right. And if I just followed those natural inclinations, I would be on the right path. And Paul is saying no. No. Sure, in an ideal world, it, it would work that way. But what you're not taking into account is the grip of sin. The current, the toe that is pulling you under. None of us can see the light. 
but it's because we've plunged into the darkness. The darkness has sucked us in. What that means is that the light must come to us. If we are so deeply submerged in the darkness that we cannot see the light that shines, then the light must come to us, and in Christ it does. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown it in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is only one way to make peace with, to accept Paul's description of the effects of sin, and that's to have faith in Christ's power over the grip of sin. If you're perishing, Paul says, the gospel is veiled to you. If you're telling yourself, my eyes are open, wide open, I just don't see it. What Paul is saying is you don't see it because of blindness, not because it isn't there. You've been blinded, he says, by the power of your own sin, which wants to keep you in bondage, wants to hide the light from you. It wants to keep you from the light. And as bleak as that sounds, it's not as if there is no hope. Paul says it only so that you can appreciate where that hope is to be found. Jesus is the light that shines on our darkness. Jesus has power to give sight to the blind. Last week, our lectionary reading was from Luke chapter 4. It's that moment where Jesus goes home to his hometown. He goes to the synagogue, and as a rabbi, he gets the opportunity to read from the scripture scroll as part of the service. And so somebody hands him Isaiah. It's interesting the way that Luke describes it. He doesn't say Jesus rummages through the scrolls and finds Isaiah, but someone just hands it to him. And he opens it up, and he reads these words from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He reads those words, he rolls up the scroll, he puts it back, and he goes and he sits down. And Luke says, everybody stares. They're all looking at him, waiting to see what he's going to say. And what he says is this, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They've handed him at random this scroll from Isaiah. He reads the words and he says to them, today, in your hearing, this prophecy has been fulfilled. The one who Isaiah spoke to is in your midst, doing the things that Isaiah said he would do. When we think about the miracles of Jesus, we kind of think of them as these sort of random healing events. Jesus was was like just killing the, the healthcare industry in Israel by going around and healing everybody that he ran into. But those acts of healing, they do have a meaning behind them. There's a reason why there are certain kinds of ailments that Jesus heals. And, and one of those that's, that's easy to interpret is blindness. Jesus says he's come to give sight to the blind. He's proclaiming good news to the poor. 
He's proclaiming liberty to the captives, that the bondage of sin will be broken and the captives to sin will be set free, that the blind who cannot see the light of revelation will recover their sight, that those who are oppressed by sin will be set at liberty as the year of the Lord's favor is proclaimed. That's what Christ has come to do, to shine that light of revelation into our eyes. To the Romans hearing this, it wouldn't have been Paul breaking new ground. As I said earlier, some of these ideas would have been familiar to them. Paul is building a bridge. He's building on things they would have had in common together, a common understanding, at least to some extent, of the power of of sinful human behavior and the struggle between virtue and vice, that sort of thing. The Stoics didn't need Paul to come along and tell them there was this struggle, to tell them that, that... that you must live in this higher way, that you must suppress and master your desires and not be ruled over by them. They knew these things. They had intuited them from creation. They had figured them out through reason and experience. As Paul says, even without the law, they'd become a law to themselves. It turns out they had a conscience God-given and were able to use a God-given reason to come to these these conclusions. The problem was, at best, all that achieved was to leave them without excuse. But the sum total of that intellectual endeavor, of all of the wisdom that had gone into that thinking, what that had done was confirm them in their condemnation. In order to be saved, they needed more than that. They couldn't stand before the throne and plead ignorance because they knew enough to be condemned. Ironically, Paul is saying to this this audience, this Hellenistic audience, you can't use the argument that, that Christopher Hitchens was planning to use, that it won't work to plead ignorance. And ironically, the reason is because you're too smart for that, because you're too reasonableness, you're too reasonable, you're too intelligent to plead ignorance, because I'm telling you things you already perceive. I'm telling you things experience has taught you. You have perceived these things already. If you're blind to the implications of them, you are willfully blind. And that's no excuse. The good news is, though, when you stand before the throne of God, you don't have to make an excuse. The liberating thing about the gospel is to be able to stand before the throne of God and plead guilty. You don't have to make excuses for the evil that you've done. You don't have to pretend it wasn't as bad as it really was. You don't have to point to other people who are a lot worse than you are. Do all the good things you did and try to make the case. You can plead guilty in the name of Christ, whose righteousness covers all that sin. That's the good news that Paul was bringing into that Hellenistic culture, and it is still good news now. We still have the same struggle that they had. We still perceive these these realities in the world around us and yet create ideologies for ourselves to, to blind us to them or to explain them away. And all that does is leave us without excuse. In Christ, we don't need excuses. So let's turn to him in faith. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship 
by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.